Good day, wherever you're listening from, and welcome to Indoor Air Quality Radio. It's IAQ Radio. We're Friday, November 13th. I just noticed that. 2015. This week is episode 391. My name is Radio Joe Hughes. Here with me in Studio D in lovely Central City, Pennsylvania, is our engineer, John. You gotta have faith. And joining me from Studio C back in McKee's Rocks is my co-host, the Z-Man, Cliff Zlotnick. Hi, Joe. Hello, everybody. Good day, Cliff. This week, we will be interviewing Dr. Diaz and Sarah Longo and Mike Taylor from the CMU Create Lab. Interesting, interesting stuff they're doing. We're going to talk about an air monitoring product they have called the SPEC. Before we get started, though, we can't do the show without our sponsors. And thanks to our newest sponsor, Particles Plus. Particles Plus engineers and manufacturers feature-rich particle counters, air quality monitoring instrumentation, and vacuum pump technology. Learn more at www.particlesplus.com. Count on us. John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at johndon.com. Clean Facts, the number one information source for cleaning and restoration professionals. Check them out at cleanfactswithanx.com. IAQ.net and Healthy Indoors Magazine, a free online digital magazine for industry professionals and consumers. Subscriptions available at IAQ.net. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IQ Radio when you acquire about their products or services. And last but not least, please visit the IAQ Training Institute website for the most current dates for the training you trust at iaqtraining.com. Okay, let's turn it over to the Z-Man for today's IAQ Radio trivia question. Thanks, Joe. Win a cool prize by out-competing fellow IEQ radio listeners and being the first person to correctly answer the IEQ radio trivia question each week. Submit your answer is easy. Either email it to cslotnick at cs.com, or if you're listening to the show live, you can text in the answer via your computer. I'm sorry to report. There were no correct answers to last week's IEQ radio trivia question. The IEQ Radio Trivia Question for Friday, November 13, 2015, has been sponsored by Triska, the Restoration and Specialty Cleaners Association, who have been serving the needs of and advocating for their members for over 30 years. Remember, Triska is your link to industry training, certification, standards, and events. Check out their website. It is trsca.org. Now for today's Trivia question. Name the colloquial acronym for the U.S. federal law titled An Act to Improve, Strengthen, and Accelerate Programs for the Prevention and Abatement of Air Pollution. Back to you, Joe. 
All right, Cliff, that was a tough question last week. Uh, maybe somebody will check it out on the website and, and get that one. All right, today's guest, we've got a, a triumvirate here from Carnegie Mellon University's Create Lab. We've got Dr. Diaz, we've got uh, Sarah Longo, and we've got Mike Taylor. Dr. Diaz was actually born and raised in Sri Lanka, went on to earn her undergraduate degree from Hamilton College in New York. Following college, she worked in the private sector for a couple years before moving to Pittsburgh and completing her Ph.D. in engineering and public policy at Carnegie Mellon University. Her postdoctoral field research focused on evaluating the impact of technology in underserved communities across the globe. She currently serves as the project director for the Create Lab at CMU. We've also got Sarah Longo. Sarah is a native Pittsburgher. She's got a biology degree in French. In Allegheny. She's from Allegheny College. She then spent a couple years in the clinical smoking cessation research at the University of Pittsburgh. And after leaving her clinical work, she went into a new direction and co-founded a social sharing app, Share Closet. And it, they, that kind of ignited her passion for empowerment through technology, which is, I think, how she ended up at CMU, too, at this group. She now carries that passion through in her volunteer work at the Acing Autism and to her career as the new operations manager for SPEC where she works to empower people to breathe easier. And last but not least, we've got Mike Taylor. Mike is a PhD candidate at the CREATE Lab, part of Carnegie Mellon University's Robotics Institute. His research interests include methods and calibration for low-cost sensors, machine learning, and air quality. We've got some music to welcome our guests. Particle man, particle man, doing the things a particle can. What's he like? It's not important. Particle man. Is he a dot or is he a speck? When he's underwater, does he get wet? Or does the water get him instead? Nobody knows. Particle man. All right, the particle man. Do we have Dr. Diaz up on the line first here? Yeah, yeah. Please well, call me B. <laughs> I love the intro music. I'll do my. You like the <laughs> intro? Good. Cliff, Cliff's pretty good at finding that stuff. I don't know. <laughs> well, B, thank you for joining us, and and welcome to IAQ Radio. Tell us a little bit. What what is the Create Lab? What does Create stand for? What is the lab? How does it tie in with CMU? Sure. The Create Lab is a lab in the Robotics Institute at Carnegie Mellon University. And CREATE stands for, this is very long, Community Robotics, Education, and Technology Empowerment. It's a long, very nice, short acronym to help people. But it's important, all of those words are important, we try to hit them all. Um, but in a nutshell, what we try to do is to create technology that's meaningful to communities, and we build partnerships with community groups to have better insight into what the actual needs are in the community and then work with the community to build, develop innovative technology that can help address those needs. Um, and one thing that's really unique about our lab specifically is that we actually have a team that works specifically on outreach. And that's fairly uncommon in robotics. Um, but it's really important for us because we want to have a sustained relationship with the community rather than kind of the one-off research project that we do with the community. And this way we can continuously um, build partnerships and also create technology that's meaningful and also useful and helps empower people 
to improve their quality of life. And that's kind of what we do. I can give you some examples if you want to hear more. Well, you know, we're going to talk a lot about one example, but let's, yep. let's uh, tell us about a couple others. I think this is an interesting sure. concept. Yeah, sure. A good example um, is our kind of technology fluency team for our projects. And technology fluency is similar to language fluency. We draw an analogy there. So, for example, if you're um, literate in a language, you can absorb whatever material that's out there and kind of learn what other people have done. But once you become fluent in that language, you can actually add your own voice into the mix and you can pull from different resources and put something together that expresses yourself better than it would kind of pulling something off the shelf. And the same can be said for technology. We have a young generation of people, you know, young kids who can take any technology and pretty much use it. They're, they're wired into that. But do they actually know what's happening in the background, how these tools are working? And that's kind of what we want to get at. We want to encourage people to be more fluent in technology so that they can actually put things together, pull from different resources and put something together that really empowers them and improves their quality of life rather than depending on stuff that comes to them. So kind of flip that power relationship where the technology isn't running the show, but people are empowered to use technology just as a tool. And um, <clears throat> we do a lot of work with schools, and one of our very popular projects in education is our Arts and Bots project. And that started because we um, research showed that in middle school, a lot of girls shy away from kind of the STEM subjects or science and math or technology. And we found that a lot of um, existing robotics activities for that age group were kind of robot competitions that may not appeal to everybody. Um, so we had a bunch of teenage girls come to the lab and brainstorm ideas on how they would like to use technology and one thing that they came up with is using robotics to as a tool for expression and so that's how arts and bots began and the the essential idea is that we give students real robotic components and they use recycled material foam core art supplies to actually build their own robot and so they'll you know have a base with is a cardboard box and they'll attach googly eyes to it and arms to it and put servo mortars, we were using hot glue guns, and different sensors, they have a distance sensor or a, a light sensor, and activate the robot, and then they plug the control board into a computer and actually program it to do what they want. And we purposely, purposefully integrated those into classrooms that wouldn't usually use technology, for example, in poetry class. And so that allows everybody access to the technology, and everybody gets a chance to try it out before they dismiss it or think that they can't do it. And we found a lot of times that students who are really um, high performing, you know, in in terms of book um, book work, uh, have, have are challenged by building their own robot and kind of the real world situation. And on the other side, we find students who thought they weren't good at technology. Um, discovered that they love it and they're really good at it. So it's it's a really good experience for all students, girls and boys, and it's implemented in many, many schools right now, and we actually spun it off as a company, so it's available to anybody to purchase. So that's a good example of what the Create Lab tries to do, and we do try to get, if the technology seems to be addressing a real need and is useful, we do try to 
send it out to a commercial venture so that more people can access it, and that's really important to us. But you know, obviously, it's difficult to find a good commercial partner who would kind of have the same principles as us. It's all about empowerment, not just making money. So hmm. we were fortunate with Arts and Bots, where a PhD student who helped create it actually spun it off, spun it off as a company, Burbrand Technologies, and so he sells those products then. How? It sounds like this is not a common, you know, college-type program. How is this funded? I mean, do you, do you get grants for this, or does it come right out of the school budget? <laughs> I wish. Well, yeah, we um, we get a lot of grant funding. We, we're always applying for funding. So it's very different uh, funding sources. A lot of foundations, uh, local foundations, really support us. The Heinz Endowment, Benedum Foundation, Grable Foundation. Um, they are major supporters, Pittsburgh Foundation. Um, and then we also have some NSF grants. Um, and then recently, Infosys Foundation and the Infosys Company, who partnered with us for manufacturing spec. Interesting. Cliff, let me turn it over to you. Thanks. Um, how do you divide your responsibilities up, uh, <laughs> you know, within the startup? Within the startup? Um, <laughs> That's a good question. <laughs> we work as a team for the most part. Actually, Sarah is Sarah and Ela Nurbash, the director of the Create Lab and the CEO of Avis, which is the company that produces specs, the spin-off from from Create. Um, they are the two only two people who are tech employed by Avis. All of us, everybody else, is part of Create Lab, but we support the the startup. Okay. That's kind of how it works. We do different things. Um, we were really happy to get Sarah on board because we were struggling to manage operations. It's it's very very um, difficult. <laughs> Sarah can attest to that. Um, yeah, we were doing things. The first shipment we sent, we boxed everything in the lab and put them put the specs on there. I wrote on all the boxes, "Have a spectacular day," <laughs> and then yeah, that's how we did it. The first run, it was a hundred, and it was exhausting. It was difficult to do. And we needed somebody to figure out the logistics of scaling that up because obviously we couldn't do that the whole time. So we were really happy and fortunate to get Sarah on board. And Sarah, how how did the the spec monitor, which for for let's first tell people what it is, I don't know whether you or Mike or B wants to do that. What what the monitor is, real briefly. We we showed a picture of it in our show announcement. Um, but maybe you can talk a little bit about its capabilities and, and where it came from. I mean, was it created at the Carnegie Mellon Labs, or is it somebody else's idea? How did all that come about? I can talk about how it was created. So we've been working on the spec for maybe four or five years now, and it came about through a different project called BodyTrack. And the idea for BodyTrack was to create a platform where individuals could access all the information from wearable devices or what they ate, anything that impacts their health in one place. And that would enable them to better discover patterns in their symptoms. For example, if you have chronic migraines, you can track, well, what did I eat on that day that I had the migraine? How did I feel? Was I tired? How many steps did I take? Where was I? Um, what was the air quality? So all those things that impact your health can be recorded in one one place so you can actually make better decisions about what may be impacting your health. Hmm. And one of that aspect was air quality. 
but at the time, the one of the only available indoor air quality monitors for you know consumers was the dialos, and we found you know it was difficult for folks to get the data off. Um, and easily uh, own the data, I guess, is the issue. And a lot of the wearables, like Fitbit and everything, they often give you a prescription for what you should do. So if you're doing like a weight app, it'll tell you you need to eat this many calories and do this much exercise. We want to kind of step away from that model of prescribing things to do and provide people access to their own data. So anybody who uses a spec, you own your own data. We don't really mess with that. And we want to encourage folks to use that data to make um, judgments about what's happening in their indoor space and how their air quality is changing based on what's happening in their space and what they're doing. And that will enable them to really affect and change their indoor air quality. So that's kind of what we were looking for at the time, and there wasn't something existing. So we decided to build an air quality monitor, and we, that's kind of how it came about. And I'll let Sarah tell you more about the actual monitor. Okay, Sarah, <laughs> please do. So, sure. I'm glad you shared the picture with your listeners. Um, so the spec we built is an indoor low-cost air quality monitor that has cloud capabilities, so you can hook it up to Wi-Fi. And all of the data that the spec is collecting on um, your, specific, your specific particle count will get uploaded to our data repository, and you can view what's happening um, in your indoor environment over time. So we've also equipped SPAC with a touch screen, as I'm sure everyone could see with the photo. Um, so you can all, alongside of viewing your real-time data, you can tap on the screen and switch in between um, a count of particles per liter and a weight of micrograms um, per cubic liter. And uh, you can view the last 12 hours worth of data right on your screen. You can view the last hours worth of data right on your screen. Um, so we tried to make it as easy as glancing over to a clock to see your air quality. And let me clarify on the counts. Um, Mike, maybe you can help me with this. I'm looking at it right now. I'm almost in the moderate range here because I'm moving around a lot and I've got it right in front of me, but I'm getting 558 what exactly is that? 558 what? Uh, so that represents the, uh, the number of particles per liter. And um, specifically, that's the number of particles of a, a size of about 2 microns. Uh, so that falls below the, uh, the PM2.5 size threshold for particles that are small enough to kind of get deep within your lungs. And uh, so generally, that... You know, that's sort of a representation of how many two-micron particles are, like, floating around in uh, sort of a one-liter volume of air. So these are just just the twos. I'm not getting the point threes or anything else. And that makes more sense to me because, you know, I, I do a lot of particle counting out in the field. And when I looked at this 528, I thought, well, that can't be everything below 2.5 micrometers. That That's just the twos. Right, and there's sort of like a little bit of a... There's a spread there because the, the particles aren't going to be precisely two microns. So it's seeing, in general, um, it's seeing a range of particle sizes. Um, you know, I'd say I'd say it's probably responsive from about one to three microns or so. Um, I forget exactly what we have on our data sheet, but uh, 
basically that number is kind of like if all of that mass was distributed into micron particles, that's about how much uh, how much it would be. Okay, that uh, makes more sense. Again, a little wider range because normally I wouldn't get 500 two micrometer particles in a residential setting like this unless there was some kind of an issue, and I don't think I have an issue here. Um, but that's interesting to me. And then if you could tell people about the, the mass calculation as well. I'm looking now at 20W. What does that mean? Uh, so that's, um, that's an estimate of mass based on the particle counts. Um, so that would be basically we would be estimating about uh, 20 micrograms per meter cubed. Um, that estimate is based on some of our earlier tests uh, putting a spec alongside a TM uh, federal equivalent monitor. And um, basically, it, it makes a couple of assumptions uh, based on sort of a typical particle distribution and uh, a fixed particle density. Uh, but it's basically our best estimate of how to take that count value and uh, put it in kind of the same scale that you see from other mass-based instruments, which is, I think, most of the, uh, the federally regulated monitors. And that's what a lot of people use, for instance, in the U.S. Green Building Council for their indoor air quality point. They'll use a mass concentration as opposed to just a count. Um, but it's, I find it interesting. You know, and then for folks that don't know, you can also then go and um, click on the little chart here and it kind of gives you an idea over the last, um, what is it here, I guess three or four hours, what the levels were like, when they spiked, etc. What was the reason behind that? I think um, a lot of it is because what's, what's kind of more important than the uh, instantaneous number on the screen, at least in some cases, is uh, understanding the trends of the data. Um, basically what, what increases and decreases your baseline. And so by being able to see um, what's happened either over the past hour or the past 12 hours, which is, I think, the two intervals that um, we let you see on the device right now, you can kind of, like, you can see big particle events like a, a spike in the data and try and figure out if that was uh, a cooking event or was that when you, you know, came home and vacuumed your carpet, mm -hmm. and you can kind of see that, like, when no one's in the house, like, the, the particle counts tend to kind of settle to some baseline level. So basically, by showing people the past 12 hours, um, you can kind of help them understand more how their actions actually can affect their, their indoor exposure. I, I read an article... And it, it it was I think they were talking about B in this article, and and it gave a very good, you know, we're on the radio. Sometimes it's hard to to get through to people what we're talking about, but it gave a good example of how you, I believe, in your own home, noticed and learned about more about your own home by using the spec B. Do you know what I'm talking about? And and can you tell yes. listeners? Yes, sure. I think the data, you know, that Mike was talking about, it's really important for folks to get a baseline of what's happening in their home so they actually understand how these invisible particles are acting in their home. And a lot of folks, myself included, didn't really think think about indoor air quality before I had the spec um, because there was no window into this invisible world. Um, but once I started using the spec, I had it in the house for a while, and I look at my data trends. 
I think I ran it for about a week. And every time there was a spike, I noticed it was around meal time. So it will be morning, breakfast time, lunch time, or dinner time, mostly dinner, because that's when I do most of my cooking. And so I realized there was an issue with ventilation for my kitchen. So I did some research, you know, what can I do to better ventilate the kitchen? And I had a, kind of a microwave vent above the stove. And, and what I read was, you know, having a vent above the stove is good. So I said, okay, I'm going to turn that on. It's going to be good um, before I cook. So I turned it on before I cook, and the spec went crazy. <laughs> it was terrible. And then so I had to do a little more research, and I discovered, well, you're supposed to clean the grease traps. I didn't know there were grease traps. So I, you know, checked them out. They were disgusting. I hadn't cleaned them in five years. So that's, that was one issue. So obviously just, we were just kicking up all that dust. But the other issue I found was that the vent I had was just spitting the air up and just circulating in the kitchen or sending it upstairs into my bedroom, into my child's bedroom. So it was really not going to address my issue. It was just going to transfer the kitchen issue to the bedroom. Um, so that was not, not a good solution. So then I did some brainstorming. I talked to actually Ela and um, was wondering, you know, how can I better ventilate my kitchen? I don't have the funding to put an out, outdoor vent, you know, a, a, a hood, a range hood that would vent, vent outside. So in the meantime, he said, well, you could try a window exhaust fan, and that's what I did. It's, you know, $20, $30 from Target. I bought one, put it in the window, and it definitely helped a lot. And then in addition to that, if I opened the basement door that led out of my kitchen, it helped even more. So that's kind of what we discovered by trial and error, using the spec to tell us which one's working better. Uh, so that was very insightful, and now when I do frying or any type of cooking activity, I know how to better ventilate the kitchen so that it doesn't all the emissions don't go upstairs into our bedrooms, which is kind of where we sleep and my where my child sleeps. So it's uh, it can be a really nice tool to let you know what you, whether what you're doing is making a difference. Otherwise, you're just like, trying everything without any information. You know. You know, I've got a text from a listener, and I think it's a good point. They say this would be it would be very useful if you could somehow associate the spec to the thermostat activating the blower in a residential forced air system, so you could then determine you know if if your mechanical system was adding to or reducing the particle levels if you had good filtration etc. I don't know if that's something you'd looked at or not, but I thought it was an interesting comment from a listener. Well, it is kind of interesting if you if you look at the data that uh, that you kind of collect and send up to the cloud through Wi-Fi. Um, you can look at a much longer time history. Uh, in fact, pretty much a limitless time history of all the data that you've collected, and you can kind of zoom in and out to whatever time interval you're interested in. And uh, because the spec collects data points uh, once every minute, and because it's also collecting temperature data, um, it's generally fairly easy to see basically the, the fluctuations, the small fluctuations in temperature that happen when your, your air system comes on and off uh, to maintain some constant hmm. temperature. So it's not necessarily linked up to um, the thermostat itself, but you have a very good idea of when it's acting because generally the temperature uh, shows you right away basically during during what intervals is the air on or off 
Um, and uh, from that, you can look at the particle signal and kind of see whether or not that's uh, making things dirtier or cleaner. I didn't know I have a... Is there one in mind that does temperature? I didn't notice that. There should be. Um, it may only be evident... Well, so right now, um, and we may change this in the future, um, the temperature data, we don't show it on the screen, but it's present in the uh, the online data. I so, see. Um, Maybe we can check to see after uh, after the interview if we can help you get yours uh, up and running on the uh, the website. I would like to do that. And, and while we're on that, I, I've got a break in just a minute. But before I do, what type of sensor is in this unit? Uh, the sensor that's that's in there is uh, basically a set of infrared optics that um, basically looks at how particles that are flowing through the monitor obstruct and reflect the light. Um, and this is something that's used in some similar monitors. Uh, the Dylos uses a laser. Um, the uh, the Grim EDM-180 is a federal equivalence monitor uh, that also uses laser-based optics. Um, and we're we're using some uh, lower-cost kind of infrared diodes, but uh, the principle is the same. Um, so the output similar. of that sensor by itself. Uh, is a little bit difficult to interpret, but as part of my research, uh, I've been working on basically uh, an algorithm to, uh, to take that data and transform it into the number that you actually see on the screen. So you, you've got temperature in here, you've got particles. It seems to me, and I do a lot of indoor air quality, that the other thing that you would be really interested in, and I don't know how far you've gone with this, would be relative humidity. Have you done anything with that? Yes. Yes, we um, actually we had um, the earlier prototypes had humi a humidity sensor, but we found it wasn't as good. And so we recently just found a good sensor to replace that. And the next batch of specs should have humidity sensor in them as well. How much we was that? Go ahead. I'm sorry. Because uh, it is an important factor, and also humidity affects the spec reading, uh, especially if it's outside. So we wanted folks to have insight into what the humidity is, um, along with the spec reading. Yes, that would be excellent. That would be a great addition. How much would that add to the cost of the unit overall? Nothing. <laughs> oh wow, that's excellent. And what are how much do these cost? I mean, if somebody went to your website and bought one for their home, what would it cost them? They retail on our site, which is specsensor.com, for 200 each. 200 at specsensor.com. Right. This is This is tremendous. I mean, we, you know, as professionals in, in the industry, we use a lot of particle counters, but it's really nice to, for a couple hundred dollars, be able to leave one at somebody's home. And, and like Mike was saying, you know, I would get a 12-hour uh, or, or maybe more idea of the ups and downs, the, the spikes, etc. And, and then if we could add temperature and relative humidity to that, wow, you, you got a great and powerful little sensor. We've got to uh, stop for just a minute. We're going to stop for about 90 seconds and thank our sponsors. We'll be right back. We've, we've got Dr. B. D. Diaz. We've got Sarah Longo and Mike Taylor from the Cal CMU, my goodness, Carnegie Mellon University, and uh, we, we're the Create Lab there. So we'll be right back. And thanks to our newest sponsor, Particles Plus. Particles Plus engineers and manufacturers feature-rich particle counters, air quality monitoring instrumentation, and vacuum pump technology. 
Learn more at www.particlesplus.com. Count on us. The Indoor Air Quality Association, a nonprofit, multidisciplinary organization dedicated to promoting the exchange of indoor environmental information through education and research. Visit them at iaqa.org. Gray Wolf Sensing Solutions. We use advanced sensor software technology and embedded computers to provide superior environmental test instrumentation. Visit them at wolfsense.com. Legends Environmental Insurance Services, the experts in insurance for environmental consultants and contractors for over 20 years. Check them out at legends-enviro.com. And, of course, our marquee sponsors, John Don Products, or restoration and abatement contractor shop. Visit them at johndon.com. Clean Facts, the number one information source for cleaning and restoration professionals. Check them out at cleanfactswithanx.com. IAQ.net and Healthy Indoors Magazine, a free online digital magazine for industry professionals and consumers. Subscriptions available at IAQ.net. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IAQ Radio when you acquire about their products or services. Okay, we're back for the second half of our interview with the folks down at Carnegie Mellon University's Create Lab. We've got Dr. Diaz, Sarah Longo, and Mike Taylor, B. Diaz, that is. Cliff, I want to turn it over to you. Thanks, Joe. Um, you know, you, you mentioned various acronyms, uh, you know, for the Create Lab and, and so on and so forth. I just wondered whether the product name was an acronym or... No, it's a cute play on, you know, that the speck of dust kind of thing. Okay, <laughs> okay. good. <laughs> Go ahead, Cliff. I like it. Uh, I, I guess in terms of commercialization, are you looking for distribution for the devices? Um, so right now we're, at least domestically, we're focused on pushing sales through our website, um, but we're welcoming partners who want to be affiliate marketers for us. And internationally, we are hoping to set up um, other people who will sell for us so that we don't have to keep incurring the, or our users don't have to keep incurring the tax um, duty, yeah, the duty tax whenever they ship it to another country. Yeah, the other issue is that uh, air quality is this kind of like global problem that uh, you see all over the world. And the nice thing about having people that are more local to the places where they're being sold is they'll be more in tune with the uh, the local air quality problems there, and they'll be in a very good position to advise the uh, the users of ours that are that are international. You know, one of the things that Joe had mentioned earlier is, you know, a lot of our audience are people that are involved with uh, remediation. Uh, you know, this could be after, uh, you know, asbestos. This could be they're dealing with lead. They could be dealing with mold or fungal contamination uh, inside of a home or building. Uh, another large segment of our audience deal in disaster repair. Uh, situations following fires, floods, and so on and so forth. And this this seems like a natural 
device for them you know, to utilize on the project so that, number one, they can kind of keep track of, of what they're doing and, and kind of see it in real time. Because a lot of times you're not sure exactly what's, what's going on, and I think it would provide some customer assurance uh, as well. And, you know, a couple of more sponsors are involved in, you know, selling and providing this type of equipment. So that was the reason that I asked the question. Yeah, we've had several companies, just like you described, contact us for that same reason. And we're happy to partner with anyone who wants to have a conversation about how they can use spec alongside of their products and their business. Who should they ask for, Sarah? Um, so they can reach us through our email address, which is directly on the website, either at info at specsensor.com. Um, that's probably the best one to reach uh, to get a response the quickest. All right, good. And I'm wondering, how, how often does this need to be cleaned and or calibrated? So that's actually, uh, those are some questions that we're in the process of, uh, of really anchoring down. Uh, what we're hoping is that because it's an optical system, uh, it won't need to be recalibrated unless it's dropped or, you know, if, you know, something severe happens to it that, that you know, cause it to need to be reconditioned. Uh, we're hoping that the calibration holds. Uh, as far as maintenance, we do recommend that people clean the device. And the easiest way to do that is to uh, basically just take some canned air that you would use to, like, dust out your computer and uh, just use some of that in the uh, the inlet on the bottom of the spec, and that should clean off any uh, large dust particles that have accumulated on the lens inside. And when you say the bottom, my my it looks like it's on the side here. Is there another model I need? Oh, there is another one down there. Okay. Yeah. Uh, on the side is the fan. So there's a fan that runs constantly, which creates a vacuum inside the chamber and uh, thereby pulls air through the air intake, which is at the bottom of the bag. I, I see it now. Okay, interesting. And and who who put this design together? Is that a team thing again? I think it, well, it was one of those things that... Uh, we have we have one person, uh, Josh, in the lab. He's uh, he's very good with electronics and systems engineering. Um, he's responsible for putting most of the guts of the device together. Um, we brought in an outside designer to uh, help us with the case design, um, uh. and we went through a couple of iterations there. And then it's just sort of gradually been evolving with the feedback of the whole team to uh, the device that it is now. I like the case design. I think it's it's kind of modern, kind of sleek looking. It doesn't stand out like, you know, you have some crazy thing in your room here. It just, uh, <laughs> I like it. Well, that's right. good to hear. <laughs> there's, a, there's a lot of aspects about it that, you know, we we're trying to get right for being used in a home. Another uh, another kind of design decision was to uh, use the quietest fan running at the slowest speed possible to still be functional um, because a lot of people want to use this in their bedroom. And so if it's as loud as, I'm sure some of the particle counters that you're used to working with, um, you wouldn't want to sleep next to it. Mm -hmm. And uh, the trade-off is that we're pulling less air and, you know, thus fewer particles through uh, the device. So it makes it a little susceptible to, like, wind gusts, for example. But uh, that only really comes into play if you have the monitor uh, outside, which is kind of outside of its intended range of operation. But... Uh, you know, so we've tried to make it quiet and easy to just kind of blend into the background. Where, where are these manufactured? We manufacture locally in Pittsburgh, 
Oh, wonderful. Yeah. It's the lab or... Uh, so it started at the lab, um, and as soon as we were ready to scale, we used um, a third-party manufacturer just north of the city, and whenever we're ready to box and ship them, we do all of that work in South Oakland. Very cool. And is, I got another uh, text question. Is What is the airflow rate? Uh, let's see. To be honest, I don't know off the top of my head. I would have to... I'd have to check out the uh, the data sheet for the fan. Okay, we can put it in the in the blog if you can get us that. Um, Cliff does a blog on the show, and it's it's excellent. After each show, he'll write a blog, and then he'll send it to you for review. Make sure we got everything right, and we'll have a really good blog after this show. I am sure. When we talk about location of the unit, where do you recommend? I mean, obviously, most people are only going to buy one unit. Do you recommend they move it around or they put it in one central location? How do you handle that? Well, the device itself is designed to work in most indoor environments. Um, that kind of lets us keep it low cost uh, because, you know, we don't have to weatherproof it. Um, but beyond that, really, the uh, there's a couple of interesting places to put it. I mean, the, the kitchen is a really obvious one. <laughs> Um, but also rooms adjacent to the kitchen are great to monitor because you can see uh, kind of where the uh, the airflow is coming uh, from your kitchen. Um, even things like uh, rooms above the kitchen. Um, places near entryways are kind of interesting because when people come indoors and uh, leave to go outdoors, uh, you kind of get a volume of air from outside. Um, I would say... It's up to the user as to whether or not they keep it in one place or move it around. Yeah. But if it was me, um, I enjoy moving mine around because it kind of lets me uh, do little experiments in different locations to see uh, which actions are affecting uh, the air quality in that particular area. What we generally recommend is to put it in places where you spend a lot of time in your home um, because the idea is to gauge what you are exposed to, what your exposure is. So what are you breathing in? Which would be the same thing that the spec is breathing in, essentially. So it gives you an understanding of uh, when, you're, when, when somebody's cooking in the kitchen, what is your child exposed to in their bedroom or in the living room, wherever they're playing. So that's kind of a, a good way to think about where to put the spec. Um, in terms of in height placement, I would say the floor is probably a bad place because <laughs> you're going right. to get a lot of dust kick up, uh, particularly if you have a carpet. Um, so, you know, kind of on a tabletop, we say out of the line of direct sunlight because sunlight can interfere with the sensor's functionality. Um, but, you know, on a dark surface somewhere flat where it won't uh, get tangled up in someone's foot and fall off. <laughs> mm -hmm. And the nice thing about putting it near on a table, too, is it's actually in the volume of air that you're breathing. Um, yeah. Whereas, unless you're doing a lot of crawling around on the floor, <laughs> um, that's not kids. necessarily where you'd be breathing. I would say not to put it in the bathroom, particularly when you're taking a hot shower, because the humidity yeah. particles will register as particles and would give you not very meaningful information. Uh, similarly, by a kettle would be misleading, too. Well, I, I want to come back to that in a moment, but I also want to... Um, add a suggestion that, that a, a listener texted us, and that would be to, to put it at a supply register and a return register, 
and you can get a, a, a general idea of, you know, how, how well your mechanical system is doing it either. You know, it's either adding particles to the air or it's filtering them out. And um, that might be another useful piece of information for people. Thank you. What other variables affect the measurement? I've noticed in my home, I, I live up on the mountain, and there are mornings when you can't see the mountain uh, across the way, you know, because it's so foggy up here. And, and I've noticed on those days I get pretty high readings. Is that the type of thing you also mentioned for people? Right. It's it's basically measuring uh, measuring fine particulates is uh, really tricky, as I'm sure you're aware, because it's basically any um, any small solid or liquid particle in kind of that uh, 2.5 and below micron range. Um, so if, uh, say, it's exceptionally uh, humid and there's a lot of fog, or if, uh, you know, you've been running a hot shower and you have it in your bathroom, uh, there, there are particles in the air. It's, it's water and water vapor and so forth. Um, but they're not necessarily harmful. Um, so the reading goes up, but it doesn't necessarily mean you need to, like, you know, like, leave your home forever. Um, <laughs> so humidity is just something that um, when people see a high reading, they should be mindful of. Um, and it's sort of a more general uh, strategy. Whenever a high reading happens, people should immediately try and see if they can figure out what the source of the, uh, the high reading is. Um, is it cooking, or is it maybe something that's coming from outside? Um, you know, kind of having a having a little bit of the scientific method in mind of like trying to figure out what the source of the particles is is good. Yeah, what we encourage folks to do is become kind of air quality detectives in their home. I don't know who coined that term, but we like it. Um, <laughs> and so, kind of investigate if you see a spike, what's happening? What is the window open? Maybe try closing it. Does that change anything? Is the window closed? What happens when you open it? Kind of just a simple trial and error, what's going on in your home type thing. Um. Oh, and as far as interfering factors go, uh, one other thing is that if anybody sees their data just doing really bizarre things, um, <laughs> yeah, like I think, I think B and Sarah know where I'm going with this, um, check it for spiders. Um, <laughs> I, I don't understand why, but... Uh, because I, it's warm. Yeah, I guess it's because it's, it's warm. Um, there's... I don't know how many spiders I've pulled out of devices that have, uh, you know, been acting weird, but it's, I would say, approaching a dozen. <laughs> well, you also have air movement there, and if you one of the things they teach energy auditors is if you see spider webs, you've got air leakage. So maybe maybe that has something to do with it as well. I'm not sure. But that, that is interesting um, that, that that would be a nice place for spiders. Actually, it seems like a nice little home for a spider. <laughs> They can crawl right up that intake and <laughs> hang out. <laughs> so where where do we go from here with with the spec? Any what are the future plans? Uh, we talked about adding a relative humidity sensor. I think that's a great great idea. Are there any other things you're thinking about adding? Um, for the next round, we're actually very focused on creating a sense of community within our our current users and the future ones. So we have, we have just released an iPhone and an Android app where you can monitor uh, air quality readings from the closest federal sensor, but you can also tie your spec into that to see any differences between your indoor and outdoor environment. 
Hmm. Um, we're also going to push out a national library campaign. Uh, the spec is currently in 14 or so libraries in Pittsburgh, and we're hoping to expand that over the course of the next year. Um, and we want people to tell us their stories and tell us what, how they're using this spec and what's happening. So um, they can go to our website and follow that same email address, info at specsensor.com, to tell us their stories and any changes they've seen with this spec. Interesting. Cliff, anything you wanted to add here? Um, no, not really. I've got I've got a question that you know, I we we typically send most of our questions in advance. This one's a little off the wall, but we had a a guest on oh, it's got to be 6 months to a year ago now, Dr. Brent Stevens from um, Illinois Technical Institute, and he was you know, very similar to you, very interested in using low-cost technology to help help people live a better life. And he had this group called the Open Source Building Science Sensors Project. And I'm wondering if any of you are familiar with that project. Hmm. I'll definitely have to look it up. Uh, I know that we're interested in uh, kind of... Um well, A, being transparent and, uh, you know, kind of free with, uh, you know, how we share our technology. So it sounds like maybe just by the open source thing, we might have a similar mindset. Well, um, that's, that's what made me think of it. Yeah, the, um, also uh, building management is definitely an interesting um, direction for this project. Uh, I think there's definitely a lot of potential, especially because uh, some studies that have come out recently have shown that uh, VOCs and high levels of fine particulates uh, can directly impact uh, worker productivity and um, cognitive function. So, uh, you know, it's, it was sort of like if we, if we look over the past couple of decades, uh, we can see where now comfort factors that mostly have to do with temperature and humidity have become sort of a key factor in building management sciences. And I think very shortly we'll be seeing air quality uh, play an even larger role uh, in terms of things like fine particulates and VOCs as a result of some of these studies. Yeah, I can't agree more. It would be nice if these became as common in homes as uh, smoke detectors and CO alarms and things of that nature. I think people would learn a lot about the activities they they partake in that you know, may, may cause problems with the indoor air. One of those activities, I'm wondering if, if you've done anything on this, either, you know, B or, or Mike, um, smoking. Obviously, indoor smoking, environmental tobacco is just a huge issue in, in many homes. Um, those particles, can you talk to us a little bit about the particle size on, on cigarette smoke and, and how well the spec would do with picking that up? The spec should definitely pick up cigarette smoke. Um, generally, fine particulates result from combustion activities, so smoking is very directly related to that. Um, and we actually did a, a pilot study last summer, and we, one of our participants had a picture of his spec when somebody was smoking near or in his home, and it was very, very high reading. And so he kind of put it up there as an example of, the effects of secondhand smoking, you know, on your lungs, too. And I think it's a big issue. In Pittsburgh, in particular, there are a lot of smokers. Um, I think, uh, I don't remember where I heard this, but uh, it's one of the few cities where uh, there's a lot of smoking among middle-class 
individuals. Um, and I don't know, we haven't done anything directly with smoke cessation pro programs, but that would be a cool aspect to it. But we are working with some schools, and we I, I can envision, you know, students coming back, you know, learning about their home air quality and making correlations with, you know, smoking in the home or near the home and having that as a conduit to educating or making it, building awareness around how smoking impacts your children's health, your health, everybody in your home's health. And oftentimes folks will walk, step out of the house, but if you're near a window, near air intake, you know, those are things to really be cognizant of um, if you are a smoker. So, yeah, if you answer your question, we haven't done anything directly related to that, but it will be really interesting to partner with somebody who wants to research that even further. And you've got somebody sitting with you that's done some smoking cessation uh, inf right. work in the past, right, Sarah? That's right. <laughs> so that would be interesting. Um, now, I've got another text question, but before I before I go to that, I, I wanted to ask, are there any other prog programs or, or concepts within, you know, the Create Lab that that are out and we should know about or that are on the verge of coming out or maybe even just some thoughts on what might be coming out in the future? We're, we're conferring with ourselves. <laughs> okay. uh, There's a lot. <laughs> we, have, we have quite a lot of projects. There are um, a lot of projects, yeah. What I would recommend is uh, the lab's website is uh, cmucreatelab.org, mm -hmm. and uh, that that stays fairly up to date with uh, with all of the projects that are kind of uh, in any kind of major swing right now. Yeah, a lot of the new stuff that's coming out of the lab are kind of these visual explorations of large data sets or imagery, and what I mean by that is you know big data is kind of a hot topic these these days. But who has access to big data? Not everybody. Um, and who, who, not everybody wants to kind of look at a bunch of numbers on a graph. So what we've created are a bunch of explorables, and you can see them at explorables that um, I think I got that right. But, um, <laughs> but the idea is you take this big data and you put it, you visualize it in a way, kind of you overlay it over a map perhaps, so that folks can interact with it. It's not just a static image of data. And you can zoom in, for example, if you have data on, um, let's see, earthquakes and fracking. You can zoom into where you live and check out, you know, what are the, what's the frequency of earthquakes and what's the, what's the situation with fracking around your neighborhood. And we're hoping that this can be a way for people to make associations with, you know, that data becomes less about numbers but about people's stories. So make the data, um, about people rather than having people become numbers kind of thing. That's the idea for a lot of our visualizations. Hmm. Definitely one of those things where more and more we're seeing that uh, data is power and whoever has kind of like, whoever has the ability to understand the data um, has more power. And so we're trying to kind of make data more accessible to people. Um, one of my favorite uh, visualizations that we have uh, we have a map, a zoomable map of the entire world that has um, basically all of the fires that burn at night over, I forget how many years, um, at least a year's worth of data. Uh, all of this data is gathered by uh, the VIRS satellite. And the reason why that's kind of interesting for people is 
of course, you can see the obvious things like where wildfires started and propagate. But if you really zoom into a local level, you can see which fires never go away and never move. And you know that that's industry. Uh, those are um, human-made uh, flaring and so forth. And so um, it's actually a really easy way of seeing, you know, even if it's not on any other map, you can, you can see where man-made fires are. Hmm. Um, yeah. And the, the website is explorables.cmucreatelab.org. Explorables? Mm -hmm. Okay. .cmucreatelab.org. .cmu.createlab.org. Now, I've got, I want to try and tie a text question and my own question somehow in here. Um, how did you come up with the scale? What's good? What's moderate? What's, I don't even know. I haven't been above moderate, I think elevated or whatever is, is next up. How did you come up with, you know, where we where are the breakpoints? Uh, really good question. And uh, it's changed a little bit over time. Originally, uh, what we were actually using was the, uh, the EPA's AQI scale. Um, but after we kind of ran our initial pilot and uh, collaborated a little bit more uh, with the EPA, uh, we learned that uh, a lot of times the uh, the AQI numbers are actually generated using a 24-hour running average, um, whereas our device is really showing um, very instantaneous readings. I mean, of course, you can also look at historical data, but we're trying to provide data with very high temporal resolution. But what that means is that if you see uh, a spike in your data that has, you know, a very high number of micrograms per cubic meter, that would correlate to like, you know, extreme AQI values. It's not as bad as if you actually saw the AQI value as that, because if the AQI value is that, it means it wasn't just a little incident. It was 24 hours of elevation that, that averaged out to that. Mm -hmm. um, so the scale that we're using um, is sort of close to um, the AQI scale, but uh, we basically spaced out the intervals a little bit more, and we tried to uh, we tried to remove kind of value judgments from uh, the different levels. So instead of saying hazardous, we say like highly elevated. Um, you know, I mean, good is kind of you know good, but uh, you know, we tried to uh, basically remove the wording that you see in like an AQI scale that says. Um, this level is the level at which you need to evacuate. <laughs> Hazardous or whatever, yeah. And AQI is the air quality index. Is that accurate? That's right. correct. Okay. And that's actually, that can be calculated using a number of different uh, quantities other than just PM2.5. And I've got one more text question from a listener, and then I want, you know, we always like to give you the last opportunity. I hope you don't have to run. We might run a minute or two over here. Um, okay. Is there a quick response time, or have you thought about like a, a more quick response time so that, for instance, people who are asthmatic might get an early warning indicator that they're in or entering a contaminated environment? Well, we, uh, the algorithm that we've developed um, tries to basically respond as quickly as, as we can. Like, if, as soon as it starts to see particles, or more particles than it has been seeing, you'll see that number start to rise. Um, because of a combination of factors, it, it does take a while before it will settle at a value. 
But again, this is sort of where we encourage users to really look at the trend in the data. Um, look at the value and then look at it a minute later and see if it's going up. Um, and because of our algorithm, we do respond uh, faster than you know, certain other monitors that have comparable flow rate. Um, but, uh, but yes, mostly, mostly I would say look at the trends. Uh, if it's going up, uh, start to exercise caution. And are you looking at uh, you know a, a device that you can plug into your phone or someone can wear on their neck that would you know help them with understanding the quality of the air in, in areas they're visiting? I think it's certainly it's certainly the the dream that whether we make it or not at some point in the future um, that air quality sensors can be ubiquitous and everywhere. Um, as far as how to get there, that's uh, that's definitely something that a lot of people are looking into, um, and uh, hopefully we'll see it in the next few years. That would be great. Well, we always like to make sure we give you, our guests, first, thank you for joining us, but secondly, is there anything we missed, anything you'd like to add before we sign off? Um, I think you covered a lot. I mean, I would like to echo what Sarah talked about in terms of the community. We are really looking for folks to start talking to each other. You know, we have sold a, a bunch of monitors now, but I think the real power comes in when people talk to each other about air quality and try to brainstorm together. And that's kind of how I found solutions to what was happening in my home. And we actually, the pilot I mentioned earlier, that was one of the most powerful aspects of the community empowerment, which is what we are aiming for through this back air quality monitor, is talking to each other. And even sharing, saying, I see this in my home. Does anybody else see that? And you're feeling that you're not alone in this, but there's a whole community working with you to troubleshoot, and everybody's trying to get the same thing out of it, you know, is improving your air quality and quality of life. And so we're hoping that more folks would talk to us about what they're seeing and, you know, treat us as aspect sensor or send us a message on Facebook. Um, so we'd love to hear from people. And if you have ideas for how to improve spec, anything. We'd like to have a community of folks talking to each other and to us. That sounds great. Um, Mike, anything you wanted to add, Sarah? Um, I mean, I think the only thing I've got is that it's a it's a really exciting time uh, in this whole field. Uh, we're seeing more and more low-cost sensors um, and more and more people learning how to use them. And uh, just to echo what B said, the, the important thing about low-cost sensors is that you can have so many of them, um, and that gives us high spatial and temporal data. Um, and when people start talking and putting that data together, uh, they can do some really awesome stuff. And Sarah? Um, I would just encourage everyone to, again, what B said, to talk to us, and but to please visit our website, which is speccenter.com. Um, even if you don't know a lot about air quality or fine particles, we tried to put a lot of content on there so that people could learn um, and then learn how to be their own air quality experts so that they can be the advocates in their community. Um, so we hope that that community aspect will grow again this year. Um, so speccenter.com. <laughs> That's what well, I Thank you for that. <laughs> Cliff, anything you want to add before we go? No, I just wanted to thank the guests. Uh, I'll be sending, um, Joe, I guess, Joe, um, I'll send you the, the blog and you can send it out to the guests for distribution and comment. 
Sounds good. All right. Well, this is Radio Joe Hughes saying thanks so much to this week's guests from from the Create Lab at Carnegie Mellon University, Dr. B. Diaz, Sarah Longo, and Mike Taylor. Please come back and join us. uh, I want to say also thanks to my uh, wingman here, John. You got to have faith at the controls. We've had hardly any glitches since John came on here. Well, the first month was a little rough. (laughs) (laughs) But since then, it's been great. Of course, the Z-Man Cliff, thanks for, as always, uh, getting together on a Friday afternoon. Most importantly, our growing group of loyal listeners out there, please come back next Friday at noon for the next broadcast of IAQ Radio. This has been another IAQ Radio production. 